please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Micah chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 9 through 13. Micah chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. There we read the following. Now why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Now also many nations are gathered against thee, that say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel. For he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hoofs brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their grain or their gain unto the Lord and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. Where is the Lord when the enemy seems to prevail against us? So what are we to cling when the cause of Christ for which we have struggled and suffered Loss seems to limp along more like a man on crutches than a man in a race. Dear ones, we are not in a sprint so that in ten seconds we have run the race that is set before us. But rather we are in a marathon race that requires endurance and perseverance to the very end if we are to finish the race that has been set before us. We are in this race for the long haul, but we are far from alone. The Lord has promised us in Isaiah 43.2, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, Thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. God takes us, dear ones, through such trials so that we never forget that the kingdom of God is not built by our might, by our strength, by our resources, but only and always by the sovereign and most mighty God and His resources. What a comfort it is to rest 
in the wisdom of God who always does what is best and to trust in the knowledge of God who knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end and has determined that the kingdom of Christ will indeed envelop all the nations of this world. Dearly, the Lord has not fallen asleep and he's not grown weary in his own cause. He will arouse himself and like a mighty warrior will abate his enemies and will defend his people. Turn with me this Lord's Day to Micah chapter 4 verses 9 through 13 as we consider the word of the Lord to Israel of old and to us in the present age as Israel of old sought to understand the ways of the Lord while in the midst of her suffering. The three main points of the sermon today are as follows. First, the travail of Israel in Micah chapter 4 verses 9 through 11. Second, the deliverance of Israel in Micah chapter 4 Uh, 10 through 13a and then thirdly the consecration of the nations in Micah 4.13b so the very first main point the travail of Israel. Consider with me the the following verses. Now why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. Previously in chapter 4 of Micah, in verses 1 through 8, the, the blessings of the millennial period in the last days are detailed by the Spirit of God, wherein the Lord will draw the nations of the world unto Christ. And these nations will say, according to Micah 4.2, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The fulfillment of this prophecy <coughs> was even yet future 
to the Apostle Paul. As it is, I would submit that it is even future to, to us where we presently are in history. Paul speaks concerning this worldwide in gathering of the nations to Christ in Romans 11:25. There, Paul prophesies that a time is coming before the second coming of Christ in which the fullness of the Gentiles, that is, the nations of the world, would be brought to Christ and the restoration of all Israel will be accomplished. Then a glorious time of peace and unity among the nations of the world and in the church of Christ throughout the whole world will reign upon the earth. However, before the fulfillment of these glorious prophecies, there were times of sorrow and heartache that awaited Israel, according to the prophet Micah. Note the shift in tense and the shift in content from Micah 4.8 to Micah 4.9. In Micah 4.8, notice what we read. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. This speaks again of the the dominion, the restored kingdom that's brought to Israel as a kingdom under Christ, wherein they acknowledge Christ's glory and greatness, following in uh, in the line of thought that we find in the earlier portion of Micah chapter four, this these millennial passages. But now, when we come to verse nine, <coughs> notice what we read not of that which shall come to pass so much as that which is to be the experience of Israel at the present time and that will continue for a great period of that time before the millennial period to be the experience of Israel when it says in verse 9 now why dost thou cry out aloud is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. That's to be the experience of Israel as the prophet speaks now. And during this period of time, there will be great travail upon Israel prior to the establishment of the millennial kingdom. Israel would not be immediately brought into the joys of that millennial kingdom, but would rather first pass through the purging fires of God's judgment and God's chastening. This seems in general to be the Lord's order, whether it be Israel, whether it be the RPNA, GM, or whether it be you as an individual Christian. If you would reign with Christ, you must first suffer 
with Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. This is the order. Likewise, if you would be exalted, you must first be humbled, humiliated. In James chapter 4, verse 10, we read likewise these words. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He shall lift you up. Remember that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers before he was exalted to reign with Pharaoh. Israel served Egypt for some 400 years before inheriting the promised land. It was even necessary that Christ suffered the rejection of his own people and the wrath of God before being seated at God's right hand upon the throne of David there in heaven, according to Acts chapter 2, verses 30 through 36. Dear ones, whenever you, as God's children, suffer, remember that suffering is not an end in itself. Whether it's prior to death or at death, suffering is not an end in itself, but that suffering is always preparing you to enjoy the Lord's blessings, both in this life and in heaven to come. The suffering of Israel of old before her time of gracious exaltation is likened by Micah to a kind of suffering which men cannot fully appreciate. Perhaps they can from a distance uh, as fathers who can appreciate it concerning their daughters who go through this time of suffering or husbands who appreciate it with regard to their, uh, their wives or perhaps even sons with regard to their mothers. But the suffering of a woman in labor, in travail to bring forth a child is that to which Micah compares the suffering of Israel that Israel would go through in Micah 4 verses 9 through 10. When God wants to convey the concept of, of suffering or the concept of anguish and pain through which his people will pass, he many times compares it to the pain associated with the birthing process. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 24, there are many examples of this, but in Jeremiah 6, 24, we read, We have heard the fame thereof, our hands wax feeble, anguish hath taken hold of us, and pain as of a woman in travail. Yes, promised glory and blessing lie in the future for Israel. But now, Micah says, now is the time of judgment and chastening 
which God will bring upon Israel due to her sins that she has committed against the Lord due to the need for her to be purged of her hope and her trust in herself and to drive her outside of herself to lay hold of Christ. What form will this temporal judgment take which is to be brought upon Israel? Israel would cry out loud because all those who did not die of famine or pestilence during the siege of of, uh, Jerusalem by Babylon that's the near reference uh, here that that we would find during the siege of, of Jerusalem by Babylon would suffer even more greatly by the rape and slaughter and torture brought upon them by the Babylonians about 100 years later and by the Romans about 750 years after that and eventually before, just before the millennium we see in Zechariah chapters 12 through 14 another time just before the millennium in which Israel will go through great time of tribulation and, and uh, the travail of, of a woman in pain and so in these various times in her history we see that she will suffer greatly there in uh, Babylon or there in Jerusalem when Babylon besieged Jerusalem the temple of the Lord was eventually destroyed as it was by the Romans in 70 AD and as it remains destroyed even to this very day Israel's king her princes her judges and wise counselors were not to be found in Jerusalem because they were led into Babylonian captivity as we read the questions that are asked here in Micah 4 verse 9 now why dost thou cry out aloud is there no king in thee is thy counselor perished in other words where's our king where are our wise counselors well verse 10 tells us they've been led into Babylonian captivity that's what is to befall them (coughs) dear children of God the Lord in many ways deals with us individually as he dealt with Israel nationally and as a church will the Lord chasten us when we go astray as he did Israel will he at times allow our our enemies to seemingly triumph over us as he did Israel will he bring us into periods of our life where it seems as though we are in bondage to some sin from which we seem unable to flee yes indeed yes indeed when Christ walked upon the earth it was fulfilled concerning him what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet a bruised reed shall he not break and smoking flax shall he not quench we read of this fulfillment of this prophecy in Matthew 12 verse 20 (coughs) you see dear ones Christ does in his love for us bruise us 
so that we are brought to our knees before him. But he will never break his own. He may bruise us and will bruise us, but he will never break us. Christ does not cause the light of his countenance within us, or he does cause the light of his countenance within us to grow dim at times, but he will never quench it. He will never put out that light, even though it may just be seemingly flickering, just barely going. The Lord will continue to fan it so that it does not go out altogether. What is the Lord doing by his bruising and dimming ministry in times of great travail and sorrow and persecution and discouragement? in our lives, in the life of our church. Well, let me suggest several purposes for Christ's bruising and dimming ministry. When Christ bruises us, He causes us to take a long, serious look at our sin in all of its manifestations, whether secret or public sins, whether intentional or ignorant sins, whether sins against God or sins against our neighbor, whether sins <clears throat> committed in worship, whether sins committed at home or on the job, whether sins of the mind, sins of the mouth, sins of the eyes or hands or feet, whether sins against a family member or sins committed against a total stranger. Whether sins of neglect and forgetfulness or sins of, of actual commission. Dear ones, we will never know the mercy of Christ until we know, know sincere and earnest grief and sorrow for our sins which the Lord's bruising and dimming ministry in our lives is intended to show us. Even this, dear ones, we read in Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Secondly, when Christ bruises us, He causes us to be humbled before Him. If we would be exalted, we must first be humbled. Pride and arrogance corrupt us all to varying degrees. And we rob God of His glory by taking credit to ourselves for what we do or what we have, rather than giving all glory to God. We compare ourselves to others so as to make ourselves look better. We glory in our appearance, in our intellect, in our works, in our gifts, when the Lord declares that everything that we have is a gift from Him, according to 1 Corinthians 4.7. Even the thorn in the flesh given to Paul was given so as to keep him from boasting, he says in 2 Corinthians 12.7. He had received mighty revelations from the Lord 
even of the third heaven, of the abode of God. And uh, to keep them from boasting in regard to those revelations, there was given to him a thorn in the flesh. And through this particular experience, Paul could see how God was humbling him, how the Lord was using this to temper his pride to glory in what God had revealed to him so that he could actually glory in his afflictions because of the work which Christ was accomplishing in his life through his afflictions so that no man not himself nor anyone else could receive glory because he knew that when he was weak at his weakest point that he was strong in the Lord that all glory belonged to God because he recognized his own weakness that if he was able to do anything for the Lord that it was due to what God worked within him not due to his own inherent abilities and and gifts and graces thirdly when Christ bruises us he sends us to himself to bind up our wounds. For he has come, dear ones, to heal the brokenhearted. That was one of the aspects of his ministry that was fulfilled in his earthly ministry in Luke 4.18. And he sends us to Christ through his bruising ministry that we might prize him above all things here upon the earth. Dear ones, apart from this bruising and dimming ministry, we would be like wayward children, seldom sensing our need of Christ. We would be, without Christ bruising us, we would simply go about whistling our way, as it were, all the way to hell because not sensing our need of the Lord Jesus Christ. He simply continues to to give us everything we want, everything we need. And we, therefore, look at this as either being due to our spirituality, our holiness, or our righteousness, or something that has deserved us. And we end up just becoming a, a, a God that we worship. We worship ourselves as, as being the source of all these blessings. But dear ones, when we fall into some besetting sin when we fall into discouragement and fear and trial, affliction, financial setback, loss of a loved one, or spiritual dryness, we are driven from ourselves. And the arm of flesh, we are driven from ourselves and the arm of flesh to seek mercy, mercy in Christ, to seek that mercy seat of Christ, wherein is spread the blood of of the most holy and righteous Savior which has reconciled God to us and turned us from being enemies to the friends of God yea, even to being the very children of God. Like the woman with the issue of blood who had spent all of her money on doctors to be healed so we are brought to the place that there is no one who can help us in our travail but Christ if we in all of our weakness will but reach out and touch the hem of his garment 
in faith believing that He will hear us, that He will save us, that He will sanctify us, that He will provide for us, then He Himself will run to meet us as the Father did with His prodigal Son. And He will carry us about like a little lamb in the secret place of the Most High where we'll find safety and refuge from the attacks of the enemy. Fourthly, when Christ bruises us, He turns us from our hypocrisy, from our playing the game of Christianity, playing the game of religion to a true and living faith. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 20, these words are spoken to those hypocrites, those who were playing a game in the church. In Laodicea, Jesus says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eyesalve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. When Christ bruises us fifthly, He leads us to be thankful for all of God's mercies and to cease from all our murmuring and complaining. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, we read, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is God's revealed will, that we be thankful in all things. A murmuring spirit, dear ones, reveals a discontented person who is unbelieving, that is, is not trusting in the promises of Christ, is discontent, and is covetous. Wants things that God has not deemed appropriate as to time or right for that person to have. This is Dear ones, tempting God. This is tempting God, as did Israel of old, who, according to the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul lays out the sins of Israel in going after and making the the image of gold and in, in their fornication and in their idolatry. And we read these words, verses 9 and 10 neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents 
Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Those who are not praising God for his goodness will be those who are, by the absence of that praise and thankful heart, they will be inclined to be sinfully critical of others in the family or in the church. You see, one of the fruits of murmuring and complaining is to find fault and to be overly critical. Obviously, we should always note if there are sins that we see in the lives of others and again, love covers a multitude of those sins but there are times at which we must confront those sins because of the nature of them uh, or because of the uh, scandal of them or the potential for scandal. But the point is that we ought not to be overly critical. We ought, dear ones, to be able to live knowing our own sins, knowing our own tendencies, our own inclinations, that we need to allow love to cover a multitude of these sins in order to live at peace with one another. But those who are not praising God, those who are not thankful, are likewise given over to that type of a overly critical spirit. They will uh, find fault at every turn. They will sow seeds of discord wherever they go. Sixthly, when Christ bruises us, he stretches us from our comfort zones in order to build us up in trust and in confidence in Christ. In order to demonstrate to us that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, regardless of the foes that we face and the fears that we have. It's easy to remain in those comfort zones. In other words, not to move ourselves or not to want to be moved out of those comfort zones. None of us want, desires in the sense of is, is excited about being uncomfortable or having to suffer pain or heartache. But nevertheless, it is very important if we are to grow in Christ that we indeed do understand that God takes us out of our comfort zones for his own glory and for our own good. Someone who has a fear of public speaking, if they simply remain within their comfort zone and simply take whatever opportunities they have to speak and make it only between one or two people or just in a small group of people they know but never take the opportunity to speak publicly in front of people that they may not even know is one who's never going to overcome those fears because they won't be taken out of their comfort zones. And so we all, if we're to grow, have to be willing to to be taken out of our comfort zone. And Christ in his bruising ministry takes us out of our comfort zones. Seventh. Seventh. And this is the last one. 
when Christ bruises us, He teaches us that our chief joy and our chief peace in this life is not in the things of this life, but is in Christ. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21 Dear ones, as we lay dying and as we lay breathing our last breath, and as the possessions of this world slip through our fingers, and no matter how tight we would like to cling to those possessions, to those loved ones, to the things of this world, we cannot do so. They slip through like sand through our fingers. That which will overcome, and that alone which will overcome the fear of death for the Christian is the righteousness of Christ. For as the Christian clings to the righteousness of Christ alone, he will realize there is and God will give to him that grace as he clings to the righteousness of Christ that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That the righteousness of Christ is his joy in this life and in the life to come. That the righteousness of Christ is His peace. It is that righteousness which has satisfied God's anger, holy wrath and anger against us. We deserve for God to be angry with us even for all eternity in hell. But it is only the fact that Christ has become our mediator, our prophet, our priest and our king and that as our priest he has satisfied the wrath of God through his own righteousness in fulfilling the law of God perfectly and in suffering the wrath of a holy God for us that we can have peace that we are that God is reconciled to us and thereby we are reconciled to God There was the one who brings us out of restlessness and into peace of mind in every fearful circumstance in which we find ourselves in this life is the same one is the same one who will bring us out of restlessness and into peace on that day of our death. Every circumstance through which we pass in this life is teaching us to rest in Christ as our peace and our joy. Every circumstance through which we pass in this life, the trials that we face, is teaching us to rest in Christ at the time of our death. It is preparing us for that time. What does it profit a man, dear ones, to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul? What can you give in exchange for your soul? Nothing. The only thing that can be given in exchange for your soul is the righteousness of Christ. That's the only thing that God will accept. If you try to barter, negotiate with God on the basis of anything else, 
you'll come up the loser. And rather than gaining your soul, you will lose it. The second main point is the deliverance of Israel. The, the deliverance of Israel. <clears throat> and we read in Micah 4, uh, beginning with the latter part uh, uh, of verse 10, Micah 4.10b, we'll read through the first part of verse 13, of this deliverance of Israel. After it speaks of Israel going into captivity in Babylon, we read, There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, Let her be defiled. Let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord. Neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hoofs brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people. The Lord is the deliverer of his people even out of seeming impossible circumstances, whether it be Gideon and the, the uh, 300 who uh, God used to deliver his people Israel against hundreds of thousands of the enemy, or whether it be the disciples who were delivered out of that seeming impossible storm or the many who were sick and afflicted during the time of Christ's ministry who were delivered from their illnesses, diseases, even death, as was Lazarus. Or whether it's Paul and Silas who, was the, who were delivered from that jail cell there in Philippi. And even we see God's deliverance in the midst of persecution and death that the Lord Jesus delivers us from all our enemies and ushers us into his kingdom as we see in Revelation chapter 12 on the part of his faithful witnesses, those who are faithful even unto death, where it says, and they overcame him, that is, they overcame the dragon, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. <coughs> Micah says in verses 10b through 13a that Israel's enemies are gathered with the purpose and design of destroying her. But the Lord of hosts has gathered the enemies together in one place for a different purpose so as to conquer them so as to destroy them the Lord brings the enemy as it were to the very doorstep of his people so as to make the fall of the enemy the more conspicuous and evident to all 
You remember the case of the Syrians who had besieged and encircled the city of Dothan where Elijah was or Elisha and how there the Lord actually turned things around brought blindness upon the Syrians so that Elisha led them out of that around from that city to the king of Israel. And we see this happening time and time again that God in the scriptures gathers the enemies of his people against them in great numbers so as to show forth his might and his power to deliver his people. The more seemingly impossible the circumstance and the situation, the more glory God receives because no one can explain it away as having been the result of man's power and resources. And to the same effect is the word of the Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with regard to even heresies and with regard to uh, to divisions which come within the faithful church of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and 19 we read, For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Well, in order to make manifest those who are approved, it also makes manifest those who are not approved. And it makes manifest those who need to be corrected. And if they are not corrected, if they will not listen, then they need to be disciplined. It makes manifest these things. And so there is a purpose and a reason for all of these things in God's most holy and most wise plan when he does sort out and divide and when he does bring heresies and divisions within the church even as within our own church as has happened. It is interesting that Micah emphasizes that God's deliverance occurs there. There. That, that adverb of of location there while they are in Babylon they are redeemed out of Babylon there in the midst of their enemies in Micah 4.10b that nation which will be the greatest political power on earth Babylon even from Babylon you shall be delivered the Lord promises his people Israel God did indeed deliver Israel from Babylon 70 years after Israel had been led into captivity and a faithful remnant returned to the land of Israel to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem under Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest and under the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. You'll recall how the Lord provided miraculous deliverances for his people at the time of King Hezekiah 
when the Assyrians, not the Syrians, Assyrians besieged Jerusalem, how he sent the, the angel of death and 185,000 of them were destroyed, though they mocked uh, Hezekiah from over the walls and said uh, to uh, the people seeking to stir up mutiny and conspiracy within the people, there who heard them speak by saying, you know, what what nations gods have been able to deliver them from we, the mighty Assyrians and uh, again, trying to instill fear within them. The Lord delivered Israel from the oppression of the Syrians through the work of the Maccabees in the second century before Christ. However, Israel was again sent into captivity by the Romans for her rejection and crucifixion of Christ and persecution of his ambassadors of good news, the apostles and the ministers of Christ. But just as Israel <clears throat> was delivered from Babylon, so she shall be delivered from her spiritual captivity and restored to Christ in her promised land at the time of the blessed millennium when Christ will reign over Israel and the nations from his throne in heaven as we see in Zechariah chapters 12 through 14 and a number of many other places. The Lord will be faithful and true to redeem. To redeem in Micah 4.10b means to purchase or to pay for the freedom of one who is in bondage. Micah says, There in Babylon shall the Lord redeem you from your enemies. The redemption in view here from Babylon was redemption from a political power, <clears throat> but also was with regard to a new heart that he would give to his people in desiring to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. But the word used here for redeem is the same root used in Leviticus 25.25 where one who was sold into slavery due to his poverty could be redeemed by the act of kindness on the part of a kinsman, kinsman redeemer, a relative who became a redeemer to pay the price to release that relative from bondage and slavery. The Lord in Micah 4.10b gives us a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing, if you will, a looking forward to a far more blessed and significant type of redemption and redeemer. The redemption of sinful men by a kinsman redeemer who became a relative by becoming man and paid in full the debt of sin which man owed God. The Lord Jesus Christ has come as our kinsman redeemer to deliver us from our bondage to Satan, to sin and to death. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus that came so low and suffered so much in order to set us free. Having now suffered and paid the price, having now legally defeated Satan, sin, the world, 
death and hell, what enemy remains that could completely and totally conquer us who have Christ as our Redeemer? What sin cannot be overcome when Christ has already died for all our sin? And we have died with Him legally to sin. What can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. The deliverance of Israel spoken of here also addresses her trampling down her enemies or rather Christ trampling down her enemies for her which will be nationally realized in its most complete sense when all Israel is called to Christ in the last days just prior to the millennium as we see again in Zechariah chapter 12 verse chapters 12 through 14 there we see a how the Lord will defend His people Israel, how He'll save them, how He'll bring upon them a spirit of mourning and grief and they will look to Christ whom they have crucified and will embrace Him in faith and love and how He will come to their aid to destroy them when it looks as though death and destruction is imminent. This is how the Lord comes to our aid Let us never, therefore, lose hope. Let us never cast aside our our hope or our faith that the Lord has forsaken us no matter how late the hour, no matter if it appears it is only a second before midnight. Remember, it wasn't until the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, it wasn't until their feet actually stepped into the Jordan River that the Jordan River parted so that they could cross over the Jordan on dry ground. It wasn't ten feet before they got there. (coughs) Five feet, four feet, three feet, two feet, one feet, one inch. It was when their feet touched that the river parted. And so it may be many times in our life that we will not see deliverance, the grace that we have prayed for come until that very final hour but let us not lose hope the third and final main point is the consecration of the nations in Micah chapter 14 or 4 verse 13b where we read and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth When it speaks of, I will consecrate their gain, the nearest antecedent is people in the previous phrase. When it says, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain. That is the gain of the many people that they will trample under. Here the Lord comforts His people with the promise that He will devote all the gain 
all of the substance, all of the wealth of the conquered enemies to himself and to his own use, to the benefit and profit of his people. It's kind of like the plundering, the plundering of the Egyptians, wherein all of the wealth of Egypt was given to the Israelites as they left Egypt. And so the Lord promises here that the wealth of the nations will come into the church. That the gold and the silver, that the resources of the world will come into the aid and the profit and the benefit of the church. We may presently be poor and unable to do all that we would like to do because our resources are so small and because our numbers are so small and because we cannot financially sustain an ongoing church court. But our confidence is not in our resources but in the Lord of the whole earth. Just as the Lord caused the wealth of Media and Persia to be freely given so that the temple of the Lord might be restored even so shall the Lord cause the wealth of the nations to be freely given so that the glory of his new covenant temple might flourish in every nation. Dear ones, even if the Lord has only used us within the RPNA to resurrect the buried truth of the descending obligation of sacred covenants, of our forefathers, namely the National Covenant, the Solemn League and Covenant, before the inauguration of the millennium, or to recover the buried truth of divine right of Presbyterianism that unifies the nation and church under the banner of Christ in our sacred covenants. And then we pass from the scene, as it were. The Lord has still used us for His own glorious purpose and is preparing us for greater things to come in the time of the millennium which may not be far away it comes at the end of a 1260 year period and depending upon when that 1260 year period begins uh, we can determine then when it will end but if if that particular period of time Began that 1260 year period began in 756 A.D. because of the of the uh, patrimony uh, of Peter being given to the Pope. If that is the time when we began that particular uh, period, that period would then be over in 2016. And so we see that this is a period of time which may not be far from us and which by God's grace, small as we are, we may have had an opportunity in raising up these glorious truths that will be present throughout the world at that time. I submit to you, dear ones, in closing, that there is another Babylon spoken of in Scripture far more dangerous and cruel than the Babylon of old, which ruled for only 100 years or so. In Revelation 17, the Apostle John is given a vision of another Babylon 
who in verse 5 is called Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. The rule of this Babylon and its popish antichrist will last for 42 prophetical months, according to Revelation 13.5, <clears throat> or 1260 prophetical days, which is 1260 actual years where one prophetical day equals one actual year as we see in Ezekiel 4.6 and Daniel 9.24 this woman in Revelation 17.5 is not a pure wife as is the faithful church of Christ but it is rather called a harlot a corrupt and unfaithful church this is, dear ones, the Romish church which is ruled over by the Popish Antichrist which we find mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 3-4 where he is called the man of sin, the son of perdition who takes up his seat in the temple of God within, that is, the church of God. But in this particular case an unfaithful church, even the church of Rome. Consider here the description of this harlot this, uh, that's mentioned in Revelation 17. She's dressed in purple and scarlet, the colors of her bishops and cardinals. She is decked with much wealth, gold, precious stones and pearls, it is said. Revelation 17 and 18. She offers her cup of the mass, which signifies all her abominations and fornications from the purity of doctrine, worship, and government of the faithful church of Christ to the world who, and the nations who become drunk with her abominations. She is drunk as well with the blood of the saints and the faithful witnesses and martyrs of Jesus Christ and history is filled with her bloody persecution and slaughter of millions of Christians. She has enslaved the souls of men by her abominable doctrine and worship and government according to Revelation 18.13. <coughs> Note that she is the mother the mother of harlots which implies that she has daughters that is, various churches who imitate her, who reflect her abominations, whether it be the emergent church that is so prevalent throughout the United States today, the emergent or emerging church, that basically in the interest of being able to fill their mega, mega churches to be able to have what they consider more of a social influence has perverted the true gospel of Jesus Christ and doctrine of Jesus Christ. Or whether it be various denominational churches that have and do promote sectarianism and yet have fraternal fellowship and relationships with other churches all of these daughters of the, of the uh, mother of harlots 
have introduced to varying degrees the whore's doctrine, her worship, and her government into their churches. For example, her abominations are introduced into doctrine in a man-centered salvation. The justification is in some sense accomplished by our works, by our own efforts, by some infused, something within us, something infused within us, rather than solely upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> or it introduces, the abomination of the whore is introduced into the worship of churches by way of man-inspired hymns, the use of instruments into worship, images and pictures of Christ and, and Christmas and other so-called holy days that are celebrated. Or the abomination of the whore is introduced into the government of the church by way of, uh, by way of binding the consciences of men with the mere dictates of a pope or mere dictates of human authority apart from the authority of Christ. Dear ones, this is a more cruel and dangerous Babylon for which we must ever be on guard and must come out from her and out from all of her daughters according to Revelation 18.4. God's people, though enslaved in the spiritual Babylon, experienced a great deliverance at the time of the Protestant Reformation but have since that time been ever so gradually drawn back to this, to this mystery Babylon, into this slavery, into this uh, bondage. Not so much by formally uniting with mystery Babylon, the Romish church, although more and more churches and more and more leaders are doing so, either converting to, Rome, to Romanism or talking, debating, or, or, or uh, discussing matters by way of where doctrines they have in common so that this lays the groundwork for uniting with Mystery Babylon. But more so by adopting so many of her poisonous teachings and practices. I submit to you that the Church of Christ has since the Reformation returned in varying degrees to that Babylonian captivity from which she was redeemed by her Savior. Covenanters, dear ones, have resisted and have resisted to the point of death this type of tyranny that we find in Rome. And, dear ones, may it always be the case that we who profess to be covenanters stand against the tyranny of Rome in every way in doctrine, worship, and government. The saddest part about the present Babylonian captivity is that Israel of old knew that she had been led into captivity, whereas the church of this age has no idea of the captivity that she is in. We rejoice, dear ones, for the same God that assured Israel of old that she would be delivered from her captivity has also promised that the faithful church of Christ will be delivered from the Romish harlot. For the Lord of hosts will completely destroy her as the dawn of the millennial kingdom 
breaks forth as we have set forth before us in Revelation chapter 20. Her destruction occurs in Revelations 18 and 19 and then we see the coming of the millennium in Revelation 20. That's our hope, dear ones. As we face the future, whether we be many or whether we be few, whether we be meeting with other covenanters or whether we be by ourselves, our hope is that the Lord will indeed crush his enemies and that he will unite his church that he will break down the walls the divisions the barriers that separate her and that the Lord will be one throughout the whole world Amen let us stand in prayer our Heavenly Father we do take great comfort in thy word today Yes, thou art a God who does bring us into travail, that Jesus does have a bruising ministry, but, O Lord, how thankful we are that he does not break us, that he does not quench us, that he uses it, O Lord, to heal us, to drive us unto himself, and to fan the flame, O Lord, to make even that which appears to be going out even stronger. So, Lord God, we pray that Thou would encourage us today to look to Christ as the author and finisher of our faith, to look to His promises for the future, for He is the same God as He was to His people of old, so He is, O Lord, to His people in this new covenant. His people of Israel and His people that come from even the Gentile nations to form a new Israel. We thank thee, our Lord and our God, for thy goodness and mercy to us today and ask, Lord, that thou would would lift up our hearts and our spirits. In Jesus' name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T-6-L-3-T-5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, 
from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.